Well, good afternoon, church family. It's good to be together, even if it's through live stream. We, are, we do thank God for this uh, means of technology. John Allen Chow grew up in Vancouver, Washington, in a beautiful place known for the rugged outdoors. One day, John was exploring his father's study and found something that captured his imagination. He found an illustrated edition of Robinson Crusoe, which is the classic story of a sailor shipwrecked on a deserted island. Chow later wrote, after struggling my way to read it with early elementary school English, I started reading easier kid-friendly books like The Sign of the Beaver, which inspired my brother and I to paint our faces with wild blackberry juice and tramp through our backyard with bows and spears we created from sticks. Chow was raised in a Christian home and attended Vancouver Christian High School. As a young man, he was consumed with two passions, outdoor adventure and Jesus Christ. On Facebook, John Chow was fond of quoting Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott, if you're not aware, was one of five missionaries who was killed in 1956 by the Alca tribe in Ecuador as they were taking the gospel to this unreached people group. After returning from a short-term mission trip, John Chow gave a short sermon warning about the dangers of being a lukewarm Christian. When John turned 18, he earnestly began preparations to take the gospel to a remote island off the coast of India. John wanted to reach the people of North Sentinel Island off the coast of India, a people with no contact with the outside world, a people that hunted and gathered their food, a people that have done that for thousands of years. One of the main reasons this people was so isolated was that they violently, violently resisted any contact with outsiders. After eight years of preparation, including linguistics training, John went through with his plan in November 2018. At this point, John was a 26-year-old adventure blogger and an evangelical missionary. He knew the danger of trying to contact these people to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knew he could lose his life trying to reach this tribe of the gospel, that the tri a tribe that didn't welcome any outsiders. But he wasn't deterred. After a few attempts to make contact with this tribe off the coast of India, he was killed. He was killed trying to reach them with the gospel. If you were tracking the news a couple years ago, his death made big news around the world. And regardless of whether or not you agree with his methods, Chow's life and his death raised a number of questions. Was this sacrifice worth it, or was it a waste? Was it worth it, or was it a waste? As we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, we see an unnamed woman offer up something to Jesus of enormous value. It wasn't her life, but it was a sacrifice a huge sacrifice, a sacrifice that caused others to ask the same question. Was it worth it or was it a waste? Was it worth it or was it a waste? Today in our passage, we're going to see that no sacrifice for Jesus is ever too great. No sacrifice for Jesus Christ is ever too great. So if you have your Bible still open, let's look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 and 2. Please follow along. Matthew 26 verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. 
At this point in the narrative, in this point in the Gospel of Matthew, we've turned a corner. Jesus has finished his fifth and final section of teaching. Over the last several weeks, we've heard sermons on the return of Christ, the physical, visible, bodily return of Jesus Christ in power and great glory. And with his teaching now complete, he enters into his final stage of ministry, the most important stage of ministry, the climax of his life. And that climax is his death. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And at one level, it should come as a surprise, a surprise to us, a surprise to the disciples, because we can almost get a sense of whiplash. If you recall from the last two weeks, Tim taught us on the passage that came right before, a passage which talked about the great separation. On that final day, all people will be divided into one of two categories, either sheep or goats. The sheep enter into eternal life, the goats into eternal judgment. And King Jesus, on that great day, that final day, that day of judgment, he is the one who does that great separation. But now Jesus is talking about something very different. He's telling his disciples that he is going to die. This means that the great king, the judge of all the earth, the king of kings and lord of lords, is going to be crucified on the cross. So you can almost get a sense of whiplash. The king of all the earth, the judge of all the earth. We read about that, the last two chapters, but he's going to the cross. And yet, that shouldn't surprise the disciples. Jesus has been teaching this all along. This is the fourth time, in fact, that Jesus has explicitly taught about his death. He's been teaching this since Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Jesus taught this right after Peter's confession, when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, means to die. It's a powerful reminder of what theologians describe as the twofold estate of Christ. The twofold estate. Which means that the first time Christ came, he came in a state of humiliation. He emptied himself, took the form of a servant, and humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And at his resurrection, Jesus enters his state of exaltation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen the final exaltation of Jesus Christ when he returns. And so these two states put side by side his glorious exaltation and his humiliation. This is a helpful reminder for us as his disciples that we too follow in the footsteps of Jesus. As the Puritan pastor Samuel Rutherford puts it, the way of those who went before you was through blood, suffering, and many afflictions. Indeed, Christ the captain went in over the door threshold of paradise, bleeding to death. Bleeding to death. Church, if Jesus Christ entered through paradise, bleeding to death, we shouldn't expect to cruise into heaven on a limo. If the people of God went through blood, suffering, many afflictions, should, should we expect anything different? 
Christ is going to be crucified. Yes, the King of kings, Lord of lords, creator of the universe, he is going to be crucified. He is going to enter through the paradise bleeding to death. As we see in this text, Jesus sets with absolute precision the date of his death. After two days, the Passover is coming. Two days, the Passover is coming. And at this moment, in this passage, Jesus is speaking on a Tuesday of Passover week. He's speaking on a Tuesday. He's going to be handed over Thursday. And, of course, he will be crucified on Friday. Of course, Good Friday. So in two days from now, on Thursday, Jesus will eat the Last Supper the night that the Passover lamb is slaughtered. He'll eat that Last Supper with his disciples. So this week is the week of preparation. We see Jesus making preparations with his disciples. We see the chief priests and elders also making preparation. And finally, we see an unnamed woman making preparations. It's in this context of preparation that we see an extravagant act of faith and love. And we're going to see that no sacrifice for Jesus is ever too great. Now, church, for us to understand Passover week, we need to understand Passover. For us to appreciate these preparations, we need to understand what these people were preparing for. What's the big deal with Passover? Why did Jesus choose to die over Passover? Couldn't he have chosen some other date, some other festival, some other time to die? Well, Passover was one of the main Jewish celebrations. It was an important part of their history. 1,300 years before Christ came, the people of Israel were slaves in the land of Egypt, victims of oppression and genocide. They toiled for their Egyptian overlords, making bricks and building cities while having their offspring, their baby boys, murdered by being drowned in the Nile. But God's plan was to bring his people into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But here's the problem. Pharaoh had no interest in letting his free labor go. He would keep his slaves no matter the cost. So finally, God executed his tenth and final plague, the plague that would force Pharaoh to let God's people go. And the only way that Israel would be protected from this tenth and final plague was the blood of the lamb. Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. On the night of Passover, every Israelite family would slaughter a lamb, put a lamb to death, and take the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorposts of their houses. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where we get the term Passover from. The Lord passed over his people when he saw the blood of the lamb. But he would strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt. In choosing to die over Passover, Jesus was fulfilling the true meaning of Passover, that he is the Lamb of God who rescues us from eternal death, that he is the spotless Son of God who sacrifices himself to redeem us from sin and slavery, that he is the good shepherd 
who lays down his life for the sheep. And so Jesus and his disciples make preparations during this week, this week of Passover. But they're not the only ones making preparations. In verse 3, we see the enemies of Jesus enter the picture once again with their own preparations. Let's look at verses 3 through 5 of chapter 26. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The chief priests and elders are the political elites in Israel. They were put in place by the Roman Empire to help them rule the tiny province of Palestine. These political elites had to walk a tight a tightrope. They worked for Rome, but they were supposed to serve the people. This is the first time Matthew introduces us to the high priest, a man by the name of Caiaphas. What do we know about Caiaphas? Well, he holds the office of high priest. He's at the top of the top, the top of the food chain. And it's a position appointed by the Roman Empire. Caiaphas served as high priest for 19 years, longer than any other high priest who served in the first century. So which means he knew how to play politics. He knew how to stay in power. He knew how to do whatever needed to be done in order to keep his Roman overlords happy. At this point in Matthew, we've already seen the opposition to Jesus by the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Now we see the focus of opposition center on the chief priests and elders, the political leaders. These political leaders also see Jesus as a threat to their power. And in their Passover preparations, they want to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But notice what they said. They said, not during the feast. Not during the feast. That begs the question, why not during the feast? Jesus and his disciples are going to be in Jerusalem for Passover. It would have been easy to track them down and arrest them. Passover was one of three feasts where God commanded his people to come and worship at the temple. Deuteronomy 16.16 says this, Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, and at the Feast of Booths. And commentators tell us that Passover, of these three, Passover was the one that was most enthusiastically observed. You would have pilgrims come all over for this one week of celebration. And they'd come from all over, not just Galilee and Judea, but from all over the Mediterranean world. It would be like the Hajj to Mecca for Muslims, or like the Thanksgiving feast for us as Americans. Jerusalem's population probably increased five times during the week of Passover. So you can smell the excitement in the air. All these people from out of town, the anticipation of the roasted lamb, the religious excitement, the national pride, the high hopes for a Messiah. Among the out-of-towners, there likely would have been many supporters of Jesus. So that's why the chief priests and the elders didn't think that the feast, that Passover, would have been a great time to arrest and kill Jesus. So they plan not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, if you're paying attention, you would have noticed two contradictory statements. Jesus said he would be handed over in two days. That's in the middle of the feast. But the chief priests and elders said, not during the feast. 
So Matthew shows us something very important, and that's this. Jesus is still in his driver's seat. The enemies are plotting, but they're doing only what he has predetermined would already happen. Even his enemies do his bidding. In the book of Acts, when the apostles pray to God, they acknowledge God's absolute sovereignty. In this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. These are the Roman leaders, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Did you catch that? Herod and Pontius Pilate, those Roman leaders, and then the people of Israel, the Jewish leaders, the political and religious leaders, they all did whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined. The crucifixion was no accident. Jesus might appear to be a helpless victim of oppressive political powers, but the political powers are nothing but puppets in his hands. So we see Jesus making preparations for Passover and the leaders also making preparations. And these plans will unfold throughout the rest of chapter 26 and into chapter 27. But before Matthew takes us into the trial, the execution of Jesus, he gives us a flashback. Gives us a flashback. We get a flashback to another scene of preparation that happened three days earlier. This would have happened Saturday, the day before Palm Sunday. There are good reasons to believe that John chapter 12 records the same scene we're about to read. And assuming that's the case, let's see what happens three days earlier. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster, alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. So while Jesus was in Bethany Saturday night, he's with his group, he's with a group of friends for dinner. He's at a dinner party. And it's a dinner party hosted by Simon the leper. Now at this point, Simon would have been healed of his leprosy. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been around so many people so close to the Passover feast. And during dinner, as Jesus is reclined at table, an unnamed woman with an alabaster, alabaster flask of very expensive ointment approaches him. She comes up to Jesus and then pours it all on his head. And assuming John 12 gives us the same scene, we learn the name of this woman. She is Mary. Mary, who has a sister, Martha, and a brother, Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead in John chapter 11. Scholars tell us that Oils were a big deal in first century Palestine. Ointments, oils, were used among Jews much more freely than we would use them today. So when a guest came over for a meal, for a dinner party, the host was expected to provide oil for the head of his guests. With the popularity of essential oils today, maybe oils are making a comeback in the modern age. But all that to say, oil was an expression of hospitality and devotion. And Mary doesn't bring out the cheap stuff that would be more typical. Matthew calls this oil, this perfume, very expensive. The Gospel of Mark calls it very costly, and John says it's made of pure nard. How expensive was it? Well, according to Mark and John, it was worth 300 denarii. 
300 denarii, that's almost a year of wages, an entire year of someone's salary. So this wasn't a $5 bottle of cheap perfume. This was worth tens of thousands of dollars. Something so expensive, it might have been a family heirloom passed from one generation to another. I wanted to find out what made, what was the, what was the most expensive perfume in the world. So I did a little bit of research. According to the Guinness World Records, the most expensive bottle of perfume is the Clive Christian Number no. 1 Imperial Majesty. The Clive Christian Number no. 1 Imperial Majesty was released in a 10-bottle run at $205,000 per bottle. One bottle, over $200,000. That's the price of a nice home. This flask would have been like that Number no. 1 Imperial Majesty. Very expensive very valuable, very precious. Alabaster was a soft stone, beautiful, semi-transparent, similar to marble. And the Gospel of Mark informs us that she took this alabaster, alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, her number one imperial majesty, and broke it, shattered it, so she could pour the whole thing on Jesus. Because for her, no sacrifice for Jesus is ever too great. I know very little about cologne and even less about perfume, so I was curious, why are some perfumes so expensive? What makes them so special? Well, many fragrances, many perfumes are made of synthetic materials. They're made by combining chemicals in the lab. But the expensive stuff is made with the real deal. One bottle of Clive Christian No. 1 Imperial Majesty has 10,600 jasmine flowers, 10,600 flowers, and 28 dozen roses. This perfume that Mary poured out on Jesus was made from the nard plant, which would have been native to India. So we're looking at something of extraordinary value, all poured out to honor King Jesus. You can imagine the aroma, the fragrance, fragrance of this heirloom perfume filling the house, filling every single room, filling every single corner, and the guests suddenly stopping what they were doing to smell the aroma in the air. So what kind of response do we see as Mary has poured out this alabaster flask of very expensive ointment? What kind of response do we get from the disciples as they smell this perfume filling the entire house? Well, maybe they would have recalled Jesus' teaching on taking up your cross, or people giving up houses and lands and family for his name's sake. But that's not what we see. Let's look at verse 8 and 9. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. The disciples were indignant, which means they were angry. They were angry at what Mary did. Shouldn't they be angry? Didn't Jesus teach us to care for the poor? In fact, in the previous chapter, we see that Jesus expects disciples to practice horizontal righteousness. How we treat Christians who are hungry, thirsty, naked, sick, and poor, it proves the genuineness of our faith. So the disciples criticized Mary for this lavish display of affection and love. 
After John Allen Chow died, attempting to take the gospel to the Sentinelese, his dad said his son died from an extreme vision of Christianity taken to its logical conclusion. His dad said his son was too extreme. Too extreme. Others were less charitable. They accused Chow of being arrogant, harmful, and foolish. Other people thought it was a waste. Again, we might have questions, even concerns about the how, about his methods. Was he really well prepared? Did he have the support of a church? Should he have gone alone? But at the end of the day, all true Christians must affirm the why. Why did he do it? Well, Jesus Christ and his gospel are worth it because he is worth everything. And yet, Mary was critiqued. And sometimes what we do for the Lord will be critiqued. J.C. Ryle writes this, We may be laughed at and ridiculed by the world, and Chow was certainly laughed at and ridiculed for trying to take the gospel to this unreached tribe. Our motives may be misunderstood. Our sacrifices for Christ's sake may be called a waste, waste of time, waste of money, waste of strength. Let none of these things move us. He notes all we do and is well-pleased. He notes all we do and is well-pleased. So let's see how Jesus evaluates what Mary did, because at the end of the day, that's really all that matters. Verses 10 through 12. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial. Jesus brings correction. In fact, he rebukes his disciples by saying, why do you trouble? Why do you distress the woman? The disciples call this act a waste. But Jesus calls it a a beautiful thing. It could also be translated a good work. Jesus doesn't call it a waste, but a good work. And I want to point out that there's no contradiction between what Jesus says now and what he said earlier. We're still required to care for the poor. In fact, will always have the poor with us. But Mary, Mary won't always have Jesus with her. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to die as a criminal. He's about to be shamed and disgraced. And so Jesus gives us the true meaning of this act. It was to prepare his body for burial, to prepare his body for his death. Historians point out that crucified criminals often weren't given a proper burial but they were left on crosses for their bodies to disintegrate, or their bodies were even thrown on the ground to be devoured or to disintegrate. But because we're created in the image of God, we have to treat the body with respect. How we treat the body shows whether we respect the person. So perfumes and oils were used to prepare a body for burial. So Jesus looks at this act this pouring out of very expensive perfume and connects it directly with the preparation of his body for his burial. In fact, this is the only time Matthew records the anointing of Jesus' body for his burial. But I do want to explore this question a bit more. Why? Why would Mary do something like this? Why pour it all out? Why break this alabaster flask? and pour out her number one imperial majesty. 
Why does Jesus call this act a beautiful thing, a good work? To answer this question, we need, know, we need to know who Mary is. Mary knows him. She knows him. She knows Jesus. She loves to fe- sit at the feet of Jesus and hear him teach. She knows him not just as a teacher, but as the teacher, the prophet. The teacher who has taught on kingdom ethics, chapters 5 through 7. Kingdom mission, chapter 10. Kingdom parables, chapter 13. And the kingdom of God on earth, the church, chapter 16 through 18. And kingdom completion, chapters 24 and 25. She has heard him teach. She knows who he is. And she knows that he has the words of life. She knows that he is the Son of God who has come in power with all authority. Authority over diseases, demons, dark clouds, and death. She knows him. Michael Reeves writes this, In the coming of the Son of God, we see the ushering in of a kingdom, the kingdom of God, which fulfills every human dream. It is like a treasure, a great pearl, a wedding feast. It means judgment on evil and self-righteousness, the provision of daily bread and welcome for outcasts. It is the binding up for the broken, the forgiveness of sin, the beginning of the renewal of all things. That is why the heart cry of the Christian is, your kingdom come. Mary knows her king. She knows this kingdom. She knows that it is treasure. It's a great pearl. It's a wedding feast. It's provision of bread, welcome for outcasts, healing, forgiveness of sins, the renewal of all things. Knowing that, she knows this, that no sacrifice for Jesus is ever too great. She does this beautiful thing because she knows the one who is infinitely beautiful. Stephen Sharnock writes, is he not light without darkness, love without unkindness, goodness without evil, purity without filth, all excellency? Are not all other things infinitely short of him? If you have repented of your sins and you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone, this is the cry of your heart. Haven't we come to see Jesus as light without darkness, love without unkindness, goodness without evil? Haven't we come to see all other things that's infinitely short, infinitely lacking and unworthy compared to him? As Michael Reeves has put it, if you know that life, true life, eternal life, is found in Jesus Christ, if we know him rightly, we will find nothing so desirable, so delightful as him. Mary found life in Jesus Christ. She knows him rightly, and so she can't help but pour out this flask of oil. She can't help but give up everything for him, because no sacrifice for Jesus is ever too great. The Apostle Paul said in the book of Philippians that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. The evidence that we're Christians, that we are followers of Christ on the road with Jesus to be with Jesus forever is this. Among many marks, signs that we are on the journey and under sail towards heaven, this is one. When the love of God so fills our hearts that we forget 
to love and care too much for the having or wanting of other things as one extreme heat burns out another. We know we're Christians because the love of God so fills our heart that we forget to love and care about other things. Living only for Jesus, sacrificing for Jesus, this is something we do as Christians. This is what it means to be a Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ. But this is something that the world can't understand. This is something that counterfeit Christians, pretenders can't understand. Makes no sense. Why should the rich man sell everything, give to the poor, and follow Jesus? Why should the disciples of Jesus Christ give up everything, give up their nets, walk away from the tax booth to follow Jesus? Why should Mary break her flask of Clive Christian number one imperial majesty and pour it all out on Jesus? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ this afternoon, I want you to consider, I want you to think about why you or anyone else would make sacrifices like that. If we're just one giant cosmic accident, the product of random evolution, why bother? If there is no afterlife, there's nothing beyond this grave, why sacrifice for others? Why bother having children? Why not just eat and drink for tomorrow we die? Jesus ends this section with verse, verse 13. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What Mary has done, this extravagant act of love and sacrifice, lives on and will continue to live on throughout eternity. The Bible has been translated into almost 700 languages. In the New Testament, 1,500 languages. Countless people know what she has done, and countless more will know what she has done in the future. And this is a reminder here in verse 13 that whatever we do for Jesus will be remembered by him and will be eternally rewarded one day. Matthew 10, 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Let's think about this, church. If even a cup of cold water will be rewarded by King Jesus one day, how much more, how much more will acts of joyful sacrifice, acts of love and devotion to King Jesus be rewarded on that day? Church, it's good to be reminded in times like this that acts of service to Christ, to his church, to his people will be remembered and will be rewarded. So church, let us, let us spend ourselves for Christ to pour out our lives as a living sacrifice, knowing that no sacrifice for Jesus is ever too great. You can't outgive God. You can't outgive God. Mary gave much to the one who gave it all. She sacrificed much for the one who sacrificed everything. She poured it all out for him who poured out his own blood at the cross. Do you know and see Jesus like Mary did? Maybe you're tuning in and you haven't yet surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe God is stirring something within you even at this very moment. That you hear the Lord Jesus calling to you, turn from your sins, turn from trusting in yourself, turn from self-sufficiency and come, come 
surrender your life and come. Do that today. Do that even now. Surrender to the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. He died and rose that you might know, that you might enjoy him. He who is infinitely beautiful, infinitely lovely, worthy, that you might know and enjoy him forever. Church, after prayer and our closing song, I'm going to give two additional application points. So if you're watching this video, don't miss the last few minutes. Let's pray. Father, show us more of who Jesus is. Show us how lovely, how amazing, how beautiful he is. Show us in all of his teaching, all of his authority, all of his miracles, all of his humility. Show us who Jesus is that we might respond in a manner worthy of who he is. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, no sacrifice for Jesus is ever too great. As we consider who Jesus is, I want us to want to close with two application points. And number one, spend your life looking at Jesus. Spend your life looking at Jesus. Michael Reeves makes a wise observation. Most of our Christian problems and errors of thought come about precisely through forgetting or marginalizing Christ. How often do we fix our eyes on ourselves, on our problems, our temptations, our weaknesses, rather than Jesus? Pastor Robert Murray McShane encourages us to fix our eyes on Christ instead. <clears throat> Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Those are wise words. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite mercy, majesty, and yet such meekness and grace in all for sinners. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ. Those are wise words. Church, for every look at ourselves, for every look at yourself, let us learn to take 10 looks at Christ. Look at him. Look at his love and mercy. Look at his humility and power. Look at his death and resurrection. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Joy comes through encountering beauty, and in Christ is found the highest beauty. <clears throat> but sometimes we don't give ourselves time to enjoy the highest beauty. Sometimes we just need to slow down and enjoy Jesus more than enjoying ministry for Jesus. When you're learning math, you learn that there's an order of operations. Order matters. Certain operations come before others. Parentheses always comes first. And church, this is our parentheses, to spend our lives looking at Jesus sitting at the feet of Jesus, being satisfied in Jesus, in who he is and what he has done. And then and only then should we consider the second application point, which is this, to seize God-given opportunities to honor Christ. Seize those opportunities. Mary seized her opportunity, her opportunity to anoint Jesus and prepare his body for burial, an opportunity that would never come again. What opportunity do you have before you right now. Are you willing to seize it? Many of you know Dwight and Afrika Jones. They are faithful members of our church. A couple months ago, they, had, they seized an opportunity to serve 
by helping to coordinate the distribution of boxes of food in our community. Dwight normally works Saturdays, but and weekends are busy for him, but due to the lockdown, Saturdays were suddenly available. And so Dwight and Afrika seized their opportunity to be a blessing to others. And during three weeks, he coordinated the distribution, they coordinated the distribution of over 300 boxes of food. Dwight and Afrika, we thank God for you. You are an example. Your example for, of your love for the Lord. And may the Lord use your example to spur us on towards love and good deeds, to seize the opportunities that God does provide for us. So church, let us spend our lives looking at Jesus and then let us seize those God-given opportunities to honor Jesus. <clears throat> John Allen Chow was compelled by love for his Lord to lay down his life. He spent his life looking at Jesus and he seized his God-given opportunity. I want to read the last note written by Chow before he was killed as a missionary, as a martyr, as a man who gave it all, a man who knew that no sacrifice for Jesus is ever too great. <clears throat> Brian and Mary and mom and dad, you guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to, the, to these people. Please do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to whatever he calls you to, and I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. This is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of this Sentinelese tribe is at hand, and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God, worshiping in their own language, as Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 10 states. I love you all, and I pray none of you love anything in this world more than Jesus Christ. All glory to God. Those are the last and final recorded words of John Allen Chow. <clears throat> Church, let me close with these words from Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen.